The Gospel lesson and sermon text for this Sunday is written for us in Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. I invite you to stand at the life of our Lord. As they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and told them, Go into the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and he will send it back here without delay. They left and found a colt on the street tied at a door and they untied it. Some who were standing there asked them, what are you doing untying that colt? The disciples answered them just as Jesus had instructed them. And the men let them go. They brought the colt to Jesus, threw their garments on it, and Jesus sat on it. Many people spread their garments on the road. Others spread branches that they had cut from the fields. Those who went in front and those who followed were crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. So far our text, let us pray. Heavenly Father, these are your words. Sanctify us through the truth. Your word is truth. Amen. Please be seated. Jesus Christ, our King, Dear fellow redeemed, God's grace, mercy, and peace are yours from the Father through the Son. Amen. Queen Elizabeth II is, or was the first, and is the only ruling British monarchy to visit Australia. On February 3rd, 1954, she disembarked from the royal yacht Britannia, at Farm Cove on Sydney Harbour and walked on Australian soil for the first time. One million people gathered to greet her. For a little perspective, in 1954, the population of Australia was under 9 million people. Over 10% of the population had gathered to greet their queen. She toured the country for 58 days, logging 10,000 miles on a plane, 2,000 miles by car or bus, and hundreds of miles by train. It's estimated that she visited so much of the country that over 75% of the population had the opportunity to see Queen Elizabeth II at least once. Wherever she went... The streets of the towns were decorated and lined with people. She won the hearts of her Australian subjects and they praised her. On that first Palm Sunday, Jesus had been touring the nation of Israel for about three years. 
He had won the hearts of the people with his clear teaching and powerful miracles. He traveled up to Jerusalem one last time to celebrate the Passover. The crowds were going ahead of him and following behind as he read the, rode those last two miles into Jerusalem. And those followers cried out the now familiar words, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus had won their hearts. He was truly a king like no other. He is the greatest of all. He is meek and gentle. Jesus is the greatest of all kings, the King of kings and Lord of lords, because he is true God, or as we said in the creed this morning, very God of very God. There are at least three things in our text that show us that Jesus is God. The first is revealed in Jesus' foreknowledge or omniscience, that he knew all things. We're told that as Jesus was traveling with his disciples from Jericho up to Jerusalem, a journey of about 17 miles and an a change in elevation of about 3,500 feet, they were approaching two small towns, Bethany and Bethphage. Bethany was about two miles from Jerusalem, and Bethphage was about a mile from Jerusalem, on the east side of the Mount of Olives. We're told that as they were approaching those two cities, or two towns, Jesus said to some of his disciples, I want you to go into the village ahead and you're going to find a colt there, untie it and bring it back to me. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Tell them the Lord needs it and will return it or send it back here without delay. How did Jesus know that there would be a colt tied up there? In fact, Matthew tells us that there was the mother of the colt as well. And that the disciples brought both back to Jesus. How did Jesus know what would be there? How did Jesus know what to tell the people who said, what are you doing? So that they would let the disciples go with the cult. Obviously, Jesus knew all things. He knew where that cult was. In fact, he knows where every creature on the face of the earth is. He also knows the hearts and minds of every person on the face of the earth. He knew exactly what to tell those people so that they would let the cult go. Jesus knows everything. Therefore, he is God. So there's the first point. The second is in the title that Jesus used when he told his disciples to tell those who ask, what are you doing? The Lord needs it. This is the first time in Mark that Jesus uses that title for himself. Jesus claimed the title Lord. 
Now notice he didn't tell the disciples, say, my Lord, as if Jesus were just an earthly ruler. No, the disciples were to say, the Lord needs it. There is no doubt in anyone's mind who Jesus meant when he said, the Lord. Jesus is the Lord of lords and King of kings. He is true God. The third and final point that shows us Jesus' divinity is in the cult itself. Mark makes it clear that the cult had never been sat on. This was an unbroken cult. It was brought to Jesus. They laid garments on it, and Jesus sat on it and rode it. That's not the usual occurrence. The first time someone sits on an unbroken cult. But not only that. Jesus calmly rode that unbroken colt in the midst of shouting crowds. An unbroken colt would panic and spook. But not this one. Jesus demonstrated his mastery, his rule of all creation. The unbroken colt submitted to the will of its creator. And calmly carried Jesus in the midst of the shouting crowd. Jesus is the creator. Jesus is the one to whom all of creation submits. He is God. And therefore he is a king like no other. King of kings and Lord of of lords and because he is a king like no other because he is the lord of lords he rules and people are to submit to his rule notice the response of the disciples to jesus command go into the next village you'll find a cult tell them this so forth bring it back here okay they did it now, I'm sure maybe they were wondering, well, is it going to be there? Are the people really going to let us go with this cult that we don't own? But regardless of their questions or doubts, or potential questions or doubts, they did it. Why? Because it was Jesus who told them to do it. It was their Lord who gave them that command. And so they submitted to his will. They submitted to his command and they went and did. They found it just as Jesus had said and they did exactly what Jesus told them to do. So they submitted to the rule of their Lord. Jesus is still our Lord today. And that's sometimes an aspect of Jesus that we just don't focus on. We focus on Jesus being our Savior. But not so much Lord. 
Luther held up the lordship of Jesus as of primary importance. And we see this in his explanation of the second article. He wrote, I believe that Jesus Christ is true God, begotten of the Father from eternity, and also true man, born of the Virgin Mary, and that he is my Lord. Jesus is Lord. And as Lord, Luther goes on, who redeemed me, a lost and condemned creature, purchased and won me from all sin, so forth. Jesus is first Lord and then Savior. And so Jesus is ruling today and still calls his disciples to do difficult things. Not everything that Jesus teaches is easy. And there are some things in our culture today that are, are very difficult for Christians to wrestle with. I would say one of the chief ones would be sexuality and, and marriage itself. Our world is very aware that God has created us as sexual beings, but the world wrongly thinks that we can use our sexuality however we want, in whatever way we want. But our Lord calls us to use it in a very special way between a husband and wife. And this influence of culture, its understanding on the gift of sexuality has entered the church and entered the way that Christians think about the gift of sex. And so it's a difficult thing to stand against the world and say, no, that's wrong. That's not how God wants us to use that. It's a difficult thing to conform our lives to the will of our King, the will of our Lord. Along that same line, society has adopted I'm going to say a very disposable attitude towards marriage. That marriage is just there for convenience. And whenever it becomes inconvenient, it's okay to just throw it off. Buy yourself another one if you want. That's not how our Lord wants us to view marriage. He wants us to view it as something precious something worth fighting for. Difficult, yes. But something that is so valuable that it's worth the effort. So Christians can be in difficult marriages and their Lord calls them, asks them, commands them to do the difficult things, to do what is necessary to make their marriage work in conformity with his will. Another area that our society is making it difficult for Christians to submit to the will of their Lord is with regards to the use of wealth. Our society, in the luxury that we enjoy, has made many people very self-centered in the use of the gifts that God has given them. 
even Christians in the United States are being influenced by this. Christians will often hold up 10% giving, tithing as, as the goal. In the United States, the average Christian gives 2 to 3% of their income to the Lord. That 10% is held up as the goal of Christian giving. And it's done so because in the Old Testament, God commanded that Christians give a tenth. So the thought is, well, if I'm given a tenth, then I'm giving what God commanded in the Old Testament. That's a misunderstanding of Christian giving. In the Old Testament, God commanded many other sacrifices and it's estimated that the average Old Testament Christian gave between 18 and 22% of their income to the Lord. So if we're going to hold 10% up as the goal, we're not even, in a sense, doing the bare minimum of what was commanded in the Old Testament. 10% should probably be the starting point. And yet, why is that difficult? Why is it difficult to render our Lord even 10% of what He has given us? It's because we think our money and our possessions, the things that He has given us, really belong to us. But they don't. They belong to our King. He has graciously given us them for earthly use, but they never ever really belong to us. They're His. And it's His will that we be generous in returning those fruits, those first fruits, to Him. Difficult teaching. But Jesus is a king like no other. He is true God. He demands and deserves your worship. Your laying of your garments down before Him. But Jesus' divinity, Jesus' power and authority could never ever win our hearts. Our hearts by nature are sinful and corrupt. We would never submit to the rule of Jesus. And that's why it's so important that he is also gentle and meek. Jesus shows his gentleness and meekness in the animal that he chose to rose into, ride into Jerusalem on. A donkey. A beast of burden. But we're also blessed by knowing what he rode in to do. Our king rode into Jerusalem to die for his subjects. All of our disobedience, all of our rebellion against the will of our king, all of the sins that we have committed against God in heaven, Jesus took all of that guilt into himself. What a burden that donkey carried. As Jesus rode in with the sins of the world on his shoulders to suffer and die as sin's payment. 
in the very chapter before our text, Jesus revealed to his disciples. He said, do not think that the Son of Man has come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We understand a ransom. Someone is taken and held hostage. A message is sent to those that love the hostages. Pay up or they die. That's the image that Jesus used to describe his death. It was the ransom price that God had set so that you could be free from sin and its consequences. And Jesus willingly paid it. He bore the punishment of your sins. He suffered what your sins demand. And he offered his holy, precious blood to God the Father for your release. And God the Father accepted it. God has given you a sign so that you can know that's true. Jesus rode in to die. He died. And God the Father raised him from the dead. By raising Jesus, God was telling you that your sins are forgiven, that the ransom price has been fully satisfied. You are now free from your enemies, sin, death, and Satan. You are God's dearly loved children. So Jesus gently, meekly in submission, rode in to die for you. But that's not the only way that we see Jesus' gentleness and meekness. Think of how Jesus treats you. We daily sin time and time again and often the same sins over and over again. But Jesus doesn't lose patience with us. He doesn't throw up his arms at you and say, you did it again, you're done. He lovingly comes to you through his word. Restores you, lifts you up, uses his nail-pierced hands to carry you safely to heaven. Through the means of grace, through his word and sacraments, day after day he assures you that you are forgiven. That he loves you. And gently he leads and carries you to heaven's gates. Jesus' gentleness and his meekness, that's what wins our hearts. His love and mercy melt us inside so that we join the crowds. We shout out, Hosanna, save us. And we praise Jesus as a king like no other. So let us join the crowd. Let us sing his praises. Let us lay our earthly possessions before him. Let us bow in true worship and praise the one who loved us, died for us, and rose again victorious. To him be the glory. Hosanna. 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen. Please stand for the blessing. Now may the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, guard and keep your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus until life everlasting. Amen.